Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and obviously the fabulous Beth. Beth, who have we got on today? So today we've got Chad L. Williams, who's a journalist and historian specialising in African-American history. His previous books include the award-winning Torchbearers of Democracy, African-American Soldiers in the World War One Era. And he also co-edited Charleston's Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism and Racial Violence. But he is here today to talk to us about his new book on W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. So very much in my remit. Hi, Chad. Hi, how are you? Very well. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yeah, great to be on. I'm really, really happy because it's been a while since we've had any African-American history, especially talking about the First World War and William du, what, du Bois. That's how you pronounce it, right? Du Bois. Du Bois. Why? Why do you pronounce it Du Bois? Uh, he was a, a stickler for his name pronunciation. Uh, he would repeatedly uh, remind people who, who mangled his last name, it was pronounced Du Bois in the English form. So I think it in some ways speaks to Du Bois's identity, uh, how he saw himself as, as an American. Um, and that's really kind of at the heart of my book, Du Bois wrestling with his identity and this larger question of African American identity. What does it mean to be black, but also what does it mean to be American? I'm just imagining him as like the person at the parties where someone just comes over and says Dubois and his face just like, what? No, Dubois. He, <laughs> he would have killed the mood at the party for sure. <laughs> uh, and, and he did, in fact, do that many times. <laughs> Please say so we talk about that in the book. Um, I don't talk about that specifically, but Du Bois had a very prickly demeanor. Um, he had a huge ego. Uh, he refused to ever admit that he was wrong. Uh, he was very difficult to get along with. Um, and that's certainly a theme that runs throughout my book. Good to know. So we've got it. We've- We've already got a sense of who he is there, but let's think about what his life was like before 1914. So before the First World War, before we get right into that, what kind of would you say to also sum up Du Bois as a person? Du Bois is really one of the most remarkable people in in history, uh, certainly in African-American history. He lived an incredible life, 95 years. He was born in 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and he dies um, on August 27th, 1963, in Accra, Ghana, literally the day before the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Martin Luther King Jr. gives his famous I Have a Dream speech. So he lived just an incredible um, amount of life. Uh, he was truly singular for his time. He was the first African-American to receive a PhD from Harvard University. Uh, he studied for two years at the University of Berlin. He was at the forefront of the development of the social sciences in the late 19th and early 20th century in history, sociology, uh, economics. Uh, he was without question the most prolific scholar 
um, of his day. Um, and he was also a committed activist. Uh, he was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And he always infused his scholarship with a commitment to addressing the problem of the 20th century, uh, which, as he famously um, articulated in his classic 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk, was the problem of the color line. Um, by the time uh, the United States enters World War I in 1917, but even before that, when the war erupts in August of 1914, uh, he is really unmatched uh, in terms of his intellectual stature and in terms of his political voice as well. When Du Bois said something, people listened. First of all, you've kind of blown my mind there just a tad. Second of all, holy shit, I'm really intimidated by this man. And number three, too right did he have the right to be arrogant. <laughs> he was, uh, again, he was w without compare. Um, he wrote 22 single author books. Just to give you a sense of how prolific he was, 22 single authored books, literally hundreds, you know, maybe even thousands of articles, essays, editorials. He wrote plays. Uh, he wrote novels. I mean, he was truly, uh, a, a Renaissance man. Um, and he believed uh, that he was singularly, uh, endowed, uh, more than anybody else, certainly in the country, if not the world. Uh, to address uh, the problems that African-Americans and other peoples of African descent were confronting uh, in the late 19th and throughout uh, the 20th century, that he was destined uh, to to serve his people and to uplift the race. Just like what a fascinating figure already. Just after one question, we just really get a sense of how interesting and great um, Du Bois's career was. And so we're going to go on to... Um, to the First World War now, or more of the detail later, but kind of thinking about um, his general thoughts um, at the beginning or, you know, when America ended up joining the war. I mean, what was Du Bois's sense once the war broke out of how it might impact people of colour globally, and in particular, perhaps in the African colonies? Yeah, well, I, I start my book in the first chapter with Du Bois sending his wife and daughter um, off to the UK, um, off to Britain. His daughter uh, was attending boarding school um, at, at Badal's, and uh, he was concerned for their safety. Uh, he wanted to make sure, and this is in August of 1914, that nothing bad would happen to them. So really from the start, the war became very personal for Du Bois. Um, and once he kind of took a step back and was able to think about just what is happening uh, to, to the world, uh, to his uh, beloved Europe, he really began to think of the war in the broader context of the African diaspora, um, and specifically in the context of European imperialism um, and exploitation of Africa, um, its human and material resources. He writes a brilliant essay in 1915 titled The African Roots of War, where he identifies the origins of the war in the competition 
amongst the different European belligerents for control of Africa uh, and its imperial uh, resources. And it was these rivalries, it was this competition that ultimately led to what he saw essentially as a European civil war. So he's incredibly prophetic, um, clairvoyant in analyzing uh, the, the roots of the war um, and making an argument that, quite frankly, I think historians are still uh, grappling with today in terms of how the war started and its global significance. Obviously, at that time in America, equality still wasn't, it wasn't there. There were still lynchings happening. And I'm actually really interested in knowing because in Germany, you have the racial war is being built up, the hatred of Jews, the hatred of anybody who's not German. So how does that ideology compare to what he thought about the lynchings and other racially motivated violence? Does it kind of contradict the view that the U.S. is better? Certainly. By the time the United States enters World War One, and again, Woodrow Wilson um, puts the United States into the war um, on this grandiose claim uh, that the world must be made safe for democracy, that the United States has no selfish interest in the war. Its singular purpose is to expand democracy and the ideals of self-determination for oppressed peoples in juxtaposition uh, to German autocracy. Uh, du Bois and others are deeply aware of the hypocrisy of, of that statement, uh, that the United States was really in no moral position uh, to stand up and declare itself as the leader of the free world, as this exemplar of democracy, while African Americans were being denied democracy at home, uh, whether we're talking about lynching, whether we're talking about Jim Crow segregation, disenfranchisement, um, all the problems of uh, the color line that Du Bois articulated so uh, passionately in, in his writings. But Du Bois also believed that the war was an opportunity, uh, that the war was an opportunity to make the ideals of democracy a reality, not just for African Americans, but for other peoples of African descent. And that's why, very controversially, against his principles, against his anti-war principles, he ultimately supports American participation in the war and the participation of African Americans as loyal citizens in the war effort. And we're going to go on now to Du Bois, what his role was during the First World War. And I just think, Chad, you made such an important point earlier about the the importance of studying the global huge global aspects of the First World War, because, you know, there have been times in the past where scholarship and, and public work has been so focused on, you know, the Western Front, for example, it's the first thing, you know, that a British audience would think of, or, you know, members of the public when you say, right, First World War. So it's, yeah, so important that we're we're talking here about Du Bois's concerns and, and thoughts about what was going to be happening during the conflict in Africa and in other global countries and continents, you know, not just what's going on on the Western Front. So that's really important there. But yeah, do tell us about Du Bois's role in the, during the war. I mean, what was he kind of keen to get himself involved with? What was he doing? Well, it's important to remember that Du Bois actually didn't serve in World War One. He was 50 years old, uh, so he didn't have the opportunity to put on a uniform, to uh, volunteer for the army, to to serve on the Western Front. He was a journalist and an activist. He was editor of the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, and that was his platform. He used The Crisis as a platform to voice his opinions and views on 
pretty much every major issue facing African-Americans and other peoples of African descent. Um, and he was incredibly active in talking about uh, the war and articulating why it was important for African-Americans to support their country. Um, in the Souls of Black Folk, his most famous book that he writes in 1903, Du Bois talks about black identity, this notion of double consciousness, this idea of being black on the one hand and American on the other. What he describes as two warring ideals, right? Two unreconciled strivings in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it being from being torn asunder. Du Bois saw the war as a potential opportunity to bring those two warring ideals of black identity together for African Americans to be seen as full 100% American citizens. Uh, and that's why he so passionately advocated for African Americans to join the army. He advocated for a segregated officer's training camp. Uh, he uh, believed that by demonstrating their loyalty on and off of the battlefield, um, African Americans would be rewarded with greater rights at the conclusion of the war. So he ends up he, he ends up in France, doesn't he? In the press corps, as you mentioned, as a journalist, as an activist. What does he find when he actually gets there? Well, before he goes to France, Du Bois actually finds himself in a lot of trouble. So he writes a very controversial editorial uh, in July of 1918 in the crisis, which was entitled Close Ranks. And in this editorial, he encouraged African-Americans to close ranks with their fellow white American citizens and the allies, but also to forget their special grievances, to put aside all of their complaints about lynching, about Jim Crow, about disenfranchisement, to focus first and foremost on their country, on winning the war, and then they could worry about their rights later. And this editorial generated a firestorm of controversy. Du Bois was accused of being a traitor to the race by his harshest critics. And this was probably the most serious charge that you could levy at someone like Du Bois, who I said felt it was his preordained destiny to serve his people, to uplift uh, the race. So by the time the war comes to an end, as I talk about in my book, Du Bois is in a very precarious position, uh, probably the most precarious position of his career in terms of his credibility and his reputation as a race leader. He uses the opportunity to go to France uh, immediately after the armistice to demonstrate his leadership skills um, on the world stage by organizing a Pan-African Congress, but also, which is the main subject of my book, to begin research for his own book on the history of the Black experience in the war. And this was going to be Du Bois's opportunity, right, to demonstrate certainly his scholarly credentials, but also his credentials as a leader and potential spokesperson for African-American soldiers and Black people more broadly in the aftermath of the war. That's fascinating stuff. And just to think about... Um, as we kind of go on now to um, to the troops, the African-American troops, we're thinking about when they came home and their reception and kind of differing, you know, responses. Um, yeah, just a point you said earlier about um, 
hoping, Du Bois hoping that, you know, if they served well and were patriotic, then they would get reward at the end. That feels so kind of reminiscent of also other troops of colour, such as Indian soldiers, where, you know, some of those hoped that by showing their um, dedication and patriotism, you know, to the British Empire, that they may then have more rights afterwards. So it's, yeah, such an interesting um, subject to consider. Um, And yeah, thinking about homecoming, I mean, for so many different groups, I mean, there's it's kind of that kind of interesting um, flip side where they come home and are celebrated as war heroes, you know, for example, but then it, it doesn't necessarily um, stay that way. And obviously for, you know, for the troops of color and coming home to an America, which has had, as you said, Jim Crow, segregation, all these, all the, the lynchings, you know, right. kind of how how was their homecoming? I mean, were they welcomed back? And then it was just, you know, sadly back to the old order. Yeah, so there were 380,000 African-American soldiers who served in World War One. 200,000 served overseas uh, in France. Uh, there were two black combat divisions. The majority of black troops served as laborers uh, because the military was not only completely segregated, but um, uh, but completely racist as well, felt that black soldiers should serve naturally in the role of, of labor troops, stevedores, uh, et cetera. But there were two black combat uh, divisions. And when Du Bois goes to France, he talks with many of these men. He actually visits the camps. He, he hears from their mouths the horrific racial discrimination that they encountered. Um, and this is the beginning of Du Bois's disillusionment with the war. Uh, my book is divided into three parts. The first part is hope. As you were saying, Du Bois hoping for the war to generate this transformative outcome for black people. The second part of my book is about Du Bois's disillusion. And that begins when he travels overseas to France. He sees how devastating the war was um, and how devastating it was for black troops in particular. That disillusion becomes even deeper when black soldiers begin to return back to the United States. Uh, they're welcomed uh, by black um, communities as returning heroes. Uh, but many white Americans are deeply fearful of what's going to happen to the racial status quo once black soldiers return back to the United States. And as a result, they're met with a just horrific wave of racial violence. Uh, the Red Summer of 1919, as it was called, uh, lynchings, uh, race riots, full-scale massacres happening throughout the country, black veterans uh, being attacked, being lynched, some still wearing their uniforms, right? This was just a devastating moment for African-Americans and for Du Bois personally, and really caused him to question what the war was about and if his own support for the war had been justified. On next question, we've touched on this a little bit already, Du Bois' writings. So, for example, before he goes out, he writes this very controversial piece. But what kind of problems did he face after the war? Were they the same? Were people still criticizing him at this point? Du Bois certainly had his critics. He always had his critics. Uh, after the war, you have kind of a new generation of African-American leaders, um, a younger, more radical generation of African-American leaders uh, who were very critical of Du Bois, um, his stance, uh, certainly during the war, uh, but also kind of the sense of accommodationism uh, that uh, he conveyed. Um, and Du Bois was very aware 
um, of the need to continually reassert his leadership standing. Um, and one of the ways that he went about doing that was through the writing of history. Uh, du Bois was a consummate scholar, and he believed that by writing the history of the war, he would be able to demonstrate certainly why the war was important, uh, but ultimately what his place in the war uh, meant uh, and how his stance in supporting the war was somewhat justified. The harsh reality that Du Bois faced, however, was that as racial conditions did not improve in the aftermath of the war, it became harder and harder for him to justify, to make sense of the war as a historical moment, but also as a personal moment. And this is why he struggled so much to write what would have been the definitive history of the war, a book that he eventually titles The Black Man and the Wounded World. How did things unfold in Liberia? Sure. Uh, well, Liberia didn't play a direct role in World War I, uh, but Du Bois, in fact, uh, visits uh, Liberia, as I talk about in my book. Uh, in late 1923, it's actually the first time that he visits um, Africa. Uh, Liberia was uh, a former colony. Uh, it was um, intimately tied to the history of uh, anti-slavery movements in the United States, uh, colonization movement uh, specifically. So Liberia has a very long, complex uh, history. Um, and by the early 20th century, even though it's ostensibly um, a independent uh, country, it's still, um, in terms of its uh, politics and in terms of its economics, uh, still very much wrapped uh, with um, uh, European uh, colonialism and also American um, economic uh, exploitation uh, as well. Uh, so Du Bois, he certainly saw um, a lot of hope and possibility in Liberia, uh, but it was also a country uh, that faced significant challenges as well. We've been focusing on quite a lot about Black African-American men, right? I'm going to underline that here. Yes. But it's not just about men. It's also about the women. When they ended up going on the pilgrimage, pil I can't even say the word, the pilgrimage, pilgrim, pilgrimage, I'll edit myself saying yeah. that correctly later, <laughs> pilgrimages, uh, they were also being poorly treated at this stage, weren't they? They were. So uh, the federal government in the 1930s initiated a program. Uh, it was the Gold Star Mothers. Uh, and these were uh, the mothers, wives uh, of American soldiers who had been killed uh, during the war, who had been interned in uh, in Europe, uh, largely in France. Um, and this was an opportunity for for these widows um, to to visit uh, their loved ones in their final resting places. Uh, when it came to the matter of African-American women, African-American Gold Star mothers, however, this became uh, a national issue because uh, the government decided to transport them on fully segregated ships. They were not allowed to travel along with white Gold Star mothers, again, reflecting how deeply ingrained Jim Crow and, and racial segregation was in the United States and specifically in the federal government. Um, black press was encouraging the Gold Star Mothers to, to not go, but they did anyways. Um, so you have this tension between kind of the politics of race on the one hand, but also just how deeply personal the war was for many African Americans and for black women in particular. I'm sorry, what the actual hell did you just say? I mean, I, 
it's really a nerve with me here, like really badly. Like for example, these are war widows, right? Their husbands fought, their children, husbands, whatever the relationship of this family member is, they still fought for the freedom of, let's say, in context here, for, for the for the world, right? For freedom, for liberation, for basic human rights, and they themselves are having human rights taken away from them. What's the actual hell? That was the reality of America. That is that is America's history for much of its history, and this was the history of of World War One that Du Bois had to to reckon with, right? The hypocrisies, the inconsistencies of America's ideals uh, when it came to the treatment of black people, and the experience of the Gold Star Mothers was just yet another reminder for Du Bois of how much a failure the war in fact was. The third part of my book is all about the failure of the war and Du Bois's own failure to ultimately write his book and to make sense of the war as a historical moment and also as a personal political moment as well. I know it's it's hard to believe, but that's <laughs> that's America's history. You, I, I want to sit here and rant for the next 20 minutes because I'm actually really pissed off. I'm just really <laughs> pissed off. It, Anyway, let's move on. I'm going to let Beth kick off because I've seen his chewing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'll let you, like, yeah, in the, in the background, you can just see. <laughs> um, to continue with the, um, well, just as we're coming out of the, um, the interwar era, I mean, Du Bois is one of those unfortunate generation who, ex- or a couple of generations who experienced the First World War and then the Second World War breaks out and they've experienced in whatever capacity they do two world wars and indeed the quote unquote war to end all wars, you know, was, was, was not that at all. I mean, so how did Du Bois's perspectives on the First World War change in the rise of fascism in Europe? I mean, yeah, what what would kind of influence his thinking at that time, and did he change his mind on on particular aspects of the way he remembered that time? So there's one part 
of my book where I write about Du Bois's travels around the world in 1935 and early 1936. He travels to Germany uh, in, in 1936, uh, really during uh, the Olympic Games, as a matter of fact. Um, he spends um, over three months uh, in Germany. Um, he also travels through Russia, uh, through the Soviet Union. Uh, he travels to China, and then he travels to Japan. So he literally sees during this remarkable period of several months uh, when he's um, overseas in 1936 into early 1937, the seeds of the next world war. He sees fascism up close. He sees what Hitler is doing uh, in Germany, his beloved uh, Germany. He sees the rise of, of Japanese imperialism, particularly their very contentious relationship uh, with China. He returns back to the United States and realizes that if something isn't done now, there's going to be an even greater catastrophe on the horizon than World War I. And he sees his book, the book that he has been laboring on for, for now decades, as an opportunity to educate the world, to warn the world about the costs of war. Um, and unfortunately, his warning calls are not heeded. Uh, certainly war uh, breaks out um, by 1940, uh, when, uh, when World War II uh, has, has engulfed Europe. He decides that he's not going to, to publish uh, his book, 800-page um, manuscript uh, that, that goes unfinished and unpublished, which would have been the definitive history of the Black experience in the war. Um, and the failure of Du Bois to finish his book is really inextricably connected to the ultimate failure of, of World War One and the tragedy of World War Two, which which engulfs the world. Out of a personal curiosity here, you said he travels to Germany, Soviet Union, China and Japan. Does he go to Poland at all? He doesn't go to Poland, no. I was just out of curiosity because obviously right in between the two you've got you've got but I'd just be very interested to see if he did go what his views were because Poland was going through a massive transition in thirty five yeah. and thirty six just at the time when he would have been there, so it would have been interesting to know what his opinions were of that yeah, I'm sure he would have loved to uh he was uh he actually took a ride on the trans Siberian Express, so he just kind of went through. Um, much of Eastern Europe, um, through the Soviet Union on his way to, um, actually what was formerly, uh, Manchuria, uh, uh and, uh, spent several, uh, days there before going to China and then, uh, Japan. Another personal question, because you, you've got my interest now, because obviously this is, this is more my, my field and my time period. So I'm quite interested to know what did he think of, for example, Japan at the time? Because it wasn't as, mm -hmm. I don't want to say well-developed, because that's the wrong way of saying it. It wasn't as, let's say, <clears throat> I'm trying to find the correct terminology for this. Uh, American is America. Does that make sense? How do I, I'm trying to find the words to kind of fall into that. Uh, Western, if that's the word I'm looking for, as Western right. as Western, the Western world. What does he think of places like Japan? Well, that's really one of the reasons why he admired Japan so much. It was a very complicated, complicated um, and very problematic relationship in some ways with Japan, as I talk about in the book. Uh, he saw Japan, particularly because of its oppositional relationship with the West, as being part of a larger 
black or or colored world, uh, to use the terminology of the time, right? He saw a natural alliance between um, peoples of African descent and Japan and how Japan uh, was going to really lead the way uh, in terms um, of uh, the, the self-determination um, and, and freedom of um, of people of, of color, particularly uh, in, in Asia in the East. Uh, so he had great admiration uh, for Japan in spite of its imperial ambitions, in spite of its uh, horrific, uh, uh, horrific is not even the, the right word, the atrocities that Japan uh, is, is committing in China uh, and elsewhere. He sees this um, or chooses to, to overlook it, uh, quite frankly. Um, um, and when uh, the United States uh, uh, declares war on Japan, he's again forced to to reckon with the the, the failures or the problems um, of, of his support for for Japan uh, and the implications that that has uh, for uh, for the world. That's really interesting. I'm so fascinated by his travels. I've got one more. I promise I will stop with just one more and then I'll let Beth ask the question. I always loved to travel. He, it was his favorite thing to do. He traveled everywhere. I think him and I have something in common in that sense. I love to travel as well. But my question is, did he ever meet Stalin? And if not, again, what did he think of the Soviet Union? Because again, it's not like the Western world. It is, it is some, even, some even more different. If you can even say that, if that's even proper English, than Japan, it's a, literally a whole different world out there. Right. So the first time Du Bois travels to the Soviet Union, I believe, was in 1926, um, and that's really an important moment in his political evolution, uh, where he begins to uh, empathize uh, with the Soviet Union, uh, with uh, with Bolshevism. And he gradually moves further to the left uh, politically, uh, but also in terms of his historical and economic uh, theories uh, and of embracing Marxist theory uh, in his uh, writings, most notably in his 1935 book, uh, Black Reconstruction. Um, he ultimately uh, joins uh, the Communist Party shortly before his death. Uh, he does spend time in the Soviet Union uh, in the late 1950s. Uh, I think, as a matter of fact, he does meet Stalin, uh, at this, uh, during this, this later period, uh, in his life. Um, and again, that was, a, a another, uh, kind of problematic aspect of Du Bois's life, which I don't get into too much in the book. Um, but certainly his kind of, um, uh, apologies, uh, for, for Stalin or choosing to overlook, uh, obviously the, uh, atrocities, you know, taking place, uh, in the Soviet Union under Stalin, uh, have, Kind of cast a, a black mark on on some of Du Bois's uh, thinkings and and actions later in his life. That actually leads on perfectly to the final question I wanted to ask, um, which is about legacy and memory. So, how Du Bois was seen by future generations after he had died. So, we you mentioned that a little bit there about his um, interest in communism. So it'd be interesting to yeah hear a bit more from you about that, and also how much notice has have previous historians and writers made contemporary to us made of Du Bois's first world experiences. It's really interesting to hear about how his his book, which would have been just so, such an important record and you know still is in published form, wasn't published. Do you think that's also affected perhaps how people have you know if they haven't not thought not written about him because this 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 amazing big book didn't exist in a published form. 
I certainly think that's that's true. And there's just been uh, there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship written on uh, Du Bois uh, without question. However, I'm the first historian to really delve into his very complicated relationship with the First World War and to look at what would have been one of his uh, most significant works of history that was never finished and ultimately never published. I think in order to fully understand Du Bois, his life, his work, his political evolution, we have to focus on World War One. That's the argument that I make in my book. To understand Du Bois's evolution, we have to understand his relationship with World War One. By the 1950s, Du Bois is a committed anti-war activist. The federal government actually tries to put him in jail in 1951 for his anti-war activities. He was accused of being an agent of a foreign principle, essentially a mouthpiece for the Soviet Union for his anti-war activities. He's 83 years old at the time. The government wants to put him in jail. And, and he stands firm to his anti-war beliefs. In order to understand how Du Bois evolves from supporting the First World War and encouraging Black people to close ranks and forget their special grievances to 1951, when he is a, a world-famous anti-war advocate, we have to understand how Du Bois' reckoning with the history and legacy of World War I shaped him and how it ultimately transformed him into the radical voice that he was in the 1950s and at the time of his death uh, in, in 1963. So Du Bois, just an incredible legacy um, that we are still, I think, fully trying to come to terms with. Um, and that's what I what I try and do in my book to provide us with a more expansive way uh, of looking at uh, Du Bois, his life, his evolution through the history of World War One. Chad, I I've loved this episode. You have brought out so many different emotions in me, um, excitement because I think uh, Du Bois is just uh, just amazing. I would love to have met him. <laughs> Second of all, the anger that you brought out in me. Which I've been seething. People can't see, but I've been seething at the back of this on the camera in the background. And I really think people should go out and read the book, not just because it's to do with the First World War, but I think he is such an amazing and interesting character that he deserves to be remembered rather than forgotten, if that makes sense. And you bring all Absolutely. of these complicated and difficult subjects into this one book. So Thank you. And please remind our listeners the name of your book. Uh, the name of my book is The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, published by Frost, Ross, and Garreau, uh, available wherever you can buy books. Fabulous. We'll get it into our bookshop. So you get a slice, we get a slice, and that rainforest website who's trying to send a rocket to the moon or whatever they're trying to do now won't get <laughs> such a big of a slice. So thank you again. It's been absolutely amazing. All right, thank you so much. Great conversation. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. 
So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.